Matthew chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. I remember when I was growing up, my family went around the Christmas holidays to visit some extended family. And on Christmas Eve, we went with this extended family to a midnight mass. They were Episcopal. And so this Baptist boy goes into this Episcopal service, and I didn't really know what to expect. I remember we sat down, and um, at the back of the pews, there was this little bench that would flip down that people could kneel on. I thought, well, that's pretty cool. You can just kneel right here in the pew in the middle of the service. I was thinking, that's, that's pretty neat. But then I soon realized I had to figure out the appropriate time to kneel. And I wasn't really paying attention to the service. I was watching the person next to me, so I knew when to do what I was supposed to do. And I was just trying to follow the liturgy and, and kind of keep up with them. So I was, I was kneeling, but I wouldn't say it was a kneeling that came from heartfelt worship. I was kneeling just trying to look like everybody else in the room. Well, this morning I want to talk to you about kneeling, not as, as a, a, a religious act of just going through the motions, but I want to talk to you about kneeling with a heart that is truly overflowing with adoration for Jesus. And I want you to look there with me, Matthew chapter 2. We're beginning a new, uh, new series this morning titled, Celebrate Christmas. And so from now through Christmas Day, we will be talking about how you and I can celebrate Christmas. This morning, we're going to talk about celebrating Christmas on your knees. Next week, we're going to talk about celebrating Christmas with beautiful feet. On Christmas Eve, we'll talk about celebrating Christmas around the Lord's table. And then on Christmas Day, on a Sunday this year, we will talk about celebrating Christmas in your heart. So, excited about this series. But this morning, celebrate Christmas on your knees. Would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, if you are physically able? Matthew chapter 2, the Bible says... Now, let me just say one more time, that was awesome. Was that not an awesome song? Wow, that was good stuff. Mm. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we stand in awe of your greatness and your majesty. And Lord, we celebrate the the beauty and the splendor and the mystery of this Christmas season. As we think about the nativity, we think about Mary holding her baby who was God incarnate. We We just say, wow, what a mighty God we serve. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We are here to celebrate Christ. We're here to celebrate the fact that He left heaven and came to earth. And we're here to celebrate and recognize the reason that Jesus left heaven and came to earth. So Lord, help us in these moments to lift up Jesus. Help us to, Lord, glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Matthew chapter 2 records the story of the wise men. 
which is a very familiar story uh, that you and I have heard through the years. And there is some valuable insight in this story that can help us to celebrate Christmas. That's what we want to do. We don't want to just go through the motions and the busyness of the holidays. We, we truly want to celebrate Christmas. And so what I want to show you this morning is that this story about the wise men communicates some important truths. And there are three aspects of this that I want you to see. First of all, their origin communicates something. Their origin, where these men came from, communicates something very important. Notice what it says there in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east, wise men from the east, it says, came to Jerusalem. So we learn that these wise men had an origin. They came from somewhere. Now, there is a lot of debate and speculation as to exactly where these wise men came from. The, the term wise men is the translation of the term magi, which comes from the root word uh, magos. And this term magos was originally the title of a Persian priestly caste who played an important role in advising the king. And this word was applied to men and to priests who specialize in astrology and the interpretation of dreams. So because of the Persian roots of this word, uh, scholars say, well, these wise men were clearly from Persia. Well, others say, well, well not so fast. Uh, this term, magi, came to be used of different groups of people all over the Roman Empire. And during the first century, uh, this term became especially associated with Babylonia. And so, based upon the use of the word in the first century, these wise men probably were from Babylon. That's what other scholars would say. And others would say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. They brought some gifts with them, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and these gifts come from Arabia. That's where you buy these things. And so, probably that means, some would say, that these men came from Arabia. And so the question is, where do they come from? The answer is, we don't know. From the east. We know they probably came from Persia or Arabia or Babylon, but somewhere to the east of Israel. And one thing we do know is this. We do know that these men were not Jews. They were Gentiles. And the fact that there's a recording of Gentiles coming to worship Jesus at the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew in the birth narrative indicates something very important to you and to me. This indicates that Jesus came not just for Jews, not just to receive the worship of the Jewish people. Jesus came for all people. He came for Jews and Gentiles, which is really good news for me because you're listening to a Gentile this morning. And I'm so glad that Jesus came for all people. And we see this not just in this text by the wise men coming to worship Jesus. We see this prophesied in the Old Testament. So hold your place, but turn with me to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60. We know, based upon archaeological evidence, that Isaiah was written hundreds of years before Jesus Christ walked on the earth as God incarnate. And listen to the specificity of this prophecy about those who would come to worship Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1 The Bible says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, 
Darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations, it says, shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So not only would Jews worship Jesus, but nations would come to worship the one who would be sent by God. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring, look at this, gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. And so before the wise men came and worshiped Jesus and brought these gifts. The Bible said hundreds of years prophetically that some would come from the nations. Gentiles would come to worship Jesus Christ. And so this is a reminder, a very important reminder, that Jesus is for all people. We'll talk some more about this next week. We talk about celebrating Christmas with beautiful feet. But this morning we just need to recognize the significance that the wise men play a very important role, a central role in the birth narrative. Jesus is for all people. Now, if you're having a conversation with someone that you don't know uh, well or, or don't know at all, and you're trying to get to know each other, probably the question will come up, where are you from? Right? If you're talking to somebody you don't know and you're trying to get to know them, eventually, where are you from? And what that person says or how that person answers that question communicates something about them. You instantly learn some things about them just by them telling you where they are from. And when we look at these wise men in Matthew 2 and see that they are from the east, they are Gentiles, we see where they are from, there's something very important communicated to us. Jesus Christ came to be worshipped by all nations. He came to be worshipped by all peoples. Amen? But there's a second thing that this story about the wise men communicates. Their origin communicates something, but secondly, their gifts communicate something. Their gifts communicate something. Look back with me in Matthew chapter 2. It says there, verse 3, When Herod the king heard this, here come these folks from another country coming to worship the king of the Jews. We saw his star, they say. When, when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. You know that Herod was a madman who was a bloody king who held on to his throne and authority at all costs. If there was anybody that was a threat to his king uh, kingdom, he would, he would assassinate them or have them killed. And so he hears that they've come to worship a king of the Jews, so he's greatly troubled by this. He doesn't want anyone to usurp his throne. And he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Probably his advisors were thinking, okay, heads are going to roll. Herod is jealous. He's looking out for this usurper to the throne. And so all Jerusalem is troubled. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So he gets the religious scholars together and say, tell me more about this one they've come to worship. Tell me more about this king. They told him he's to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, that's the prophet Micah, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, did Herod really want to worship this king? No, he wanted to kill the king. We see that later in the text. It says in verse 9, After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. What gifts? Gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So these these magi, these wise men show up to Jerusalem and say, we're here to worship the king of the Jews. And Herod says, tell me more. I want to know, I want to know more so I can worship him. Well, we see later on he has no intention to worship this king of the Jews. He wants to kill him in any rivalry to his throne. Now, there's some important insight here in the passage we just read about when the wise men arrived to worship Jesus Christ. In our nativity sets, or pictures of the nativity, or representations of the nativity story, we see that on the night when Christ was born, he's there in the manger, Mary and Joseph are there, there are some shepherds there, and the wise men are there on the night when he was born. That's probably not entirely accurate, and there's a couple indicators of that in this text. First of all, when Herod wants to make sure that this king is killed, it says there that he sends them to kill in Bethlehem all the male children who were two years old or under. Remember, he asked the wise men, when did the star appear? And the wise men probably said, well, a couple of years ago. So to make sure that he kills any rival to his throne, he says, kill the, the children two years old and under. So maybe the star appeared when Jesus Christ was born, and this was a couple of years later, not actually the night when Jesus Christ was born. There's another indicator that the Magi weren't there the night he was born, And it's found there uh, in verse uh, 11. It says, the star rested over where Jesus was. And it says, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary. So he's no longer in a manger. He's in a house. And so probably Mary and Joseph found some temporary quarters uh, to nurture Jesus Christ, uh, their baby, in his first years. And so he's no longer in a manger. He's in a house. And so they probably were not there on the night of his birth. They show up maybe a couple of years after his birth, to worship him in the house where he resided. So, at our house, with our nativity set, uh, we, we put the wise men out in the driveway. So, so when you drive up, you see they're in transit. They're not yet, there yet, they're heading that way. I'm kidding, we don't do that. I'm just, that's a joke. We have them right there by the shepherds and the... I love nativity sets. Claire loves nativity sets. They're, they're beautiful. So keep your wise men on the nativity set. No big deal, all right? I'm just letting you know that probably they showed up after the night that he was born. And they come with a very specific purpose. They come to worship him. They come to, with, with gifts. And these gifts communicate something about Jesus Christ. So wait, what do these gifts communicate about Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, they communicate that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Notice the first gift is gold. And gold was a metal that was very important to royalty. As a matter of fact, in ancient times, kings would collect their gold and they would weigh it. And if their gold weighed more than the king in the country next to them, they would say, I'm a greater king. My gold weighs more. Gold was a big deal 
to kings. As a matter of fact, the famous Roman orator and writer Seneca said this, Gold is the king of metals, and it is the proper gift for a king of men. So gold was a metal that was given to kings. And so by the wise men giving Jesus gold, it is being communicated that Jesus Christ is king. The, the, the child there with Mary and Joseph was king of kings and lord of lords. But there's another thing these gifts communicate, that Jesus is God. Not only did they give him gold, they gave him frankincense. And frankincense was a glittering aromatic resin obtained by making incisions in the bark of several trees. It gave off a pleasing odor when burned. And in Exodus 30, 34, frankincense was mixed with some other ingredients to compose the incense used at the worship at the tabernacle and the temple. And the Bible clearly says in Exodus 30, 37, this incense was only for God, not for the people to use. This was only to be used in the worship of God. Later we see in the New Testament that that the offering of incense, the, the rising of the aromatic incense signified the prayers of God's people going up to him. And so this gift of frankincense communicates that, hey, we are giving something that only belongs to God. We, we are giving him frankincense, recognizing that he is God. William Hendrickson writes, It is clear, therefore, that just as gold and king go together, so also do incense and God. And so this gift of frankincense communicates the reality that Jesus Christ, the child born to Mary, the, 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 the Virgin Mary, was not just another child. He was God incarnate, God in human flesh. The, the, the mystery and the majesty of the virgin birth and the wise men, by giving the frankincense, recognize his divinity. But there's a third thing that these gifts represent. Not only is Jesus king and God, but Jesus will die They gave Jesus gold and frankincense and myrrh. Myrrh is a sap that was used in perfume, and it was used as a spice to prepare bodies for burial. And myrrh plays a very prominent role after the crucifixion over in John chapter 19. So turn there with me, John chapter 19, verse 38. The Bible says, after these things, after what things? After the crucifixion of Jesus, his death on the cross. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh, there it is, and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, one of them being myrrh, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And so myrrh, this spice that is presented to Jesus when he's a child, is a spice that was used to bury him after he died on the cross. And so this communicates that Jesus Christ was born for a very specific purpose. He was born to die. More specifically, he was born to die for the sins of the world. Now, some people might hear all that and say, that's speculation. I mean, how in the world would you know that these gifts represent the royalty and the divinity and the death of Jesus Christ. Because it is speculation. It's been speculated through church history, but it's consistently been speculated these three gifts stand for those three things. 
And, and so the question becomes, when the wise men brought these gifts into the house, did they have any symbolic meaning in giving the gifts? The answer is, we don't know. We don't know if their giving of these gifts was intentional to symbolize some things or if it was unintentional. We, we don't know that. Perhaps these gifts were given to intentionally symbolize some things about Jesus Christ. Because remember, if they were from Persia or Babylon, remember that for decades Jewish people were in exile in those nations. And so the, the Persians and the Babylonians knew some things about Judaism. And as the Jewish people settled among them, they certainly had their scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, with them. They had their Bible teachers with them. And so probably over time, uh, information about Judaism uh, began to infiltrate Persia and Babylon. So they knew some things about Judaism because of the Jews that lived among them. So let's just say, for example, that the wise men were looking at the stars. and They say, hey, there's a star, a new star we've not noticed before. And it seems like it's leading us towards Israel. So if that's the case, let's do some study on Israel. So they found maybe one of those Hebrew Bibles that the exiles had with them. And they began to study the Hebrew Scriptures. These were wise men. These were academics. I mean, they really spent a lot of time studying different religions. And so let's just say that they began to study the Old Testament. And they began to see that God had promised, if you read the Old Testament, it's clear, God had promised to send a child who would be a redeemer. And let's just say that these wise men began to study who this child would be. Perhaps they would read a passage like Isaiah 9 and read the titles about this son who would be given, this child who would be given. They would read these titles. He would be called Wonderful Counselor. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then they would see that he would be called Mighty God. So maybe they thought, if this child we're going to see and worship is God, maybe we need to take a gift worthy of divinity. And they chose frankincense. They continued to read Isaiah 9. They would read that the government would rest upon this child's shoulders. And they would say, This child's going to rule and reign. He's going to be king. We need to take something worthy of a king. So they chose gold to take to this child. And maybe as they tried to understand more about this one they were going to worship, this one promised by God to be sent, maybe they came across Isaiah 53 and read this passage. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him, this one who would be sent, the iniquity of us all. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And so they begin to read about the suffering servant, this one who was God, this one who was king, would come and suffer. So maybe, based upon that, they took a gift that spoke to his future suffering, a gift like myrrh. Could it have been that their giving of these three gifts was very intentional. They showed up and they knew some things about this Messiah that God would send, so they chose gifts that were appropriate. Or could it have been that this was just unintentional? They just chose three gifts to give, and they had no symbolic meaning in mind. The answer is, we have no idea. Could have been intentional. You certainly can see the basis for that. Could have been unintentional. But here's what I believe. Whether intentional or unintentional, God orchestrated, because he's sovereign, God orchestrated their gift-giving to have great symbolic value. 
God's in control of everything, amen? And for some reason, these gifts are listed. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. I believe God did that. He orchestrated that. And I believe as we look at the giving of these gifts through the lens of all of the Bible, we see these gifts could communicate some very important things about Jesus Christ. He is king. He is God. He came to die. And so, these gifts are given William Barclay writes, Gold for a king, frankincense for a priest, myrrh for one that was to die. These were the gifts of the wise men. And even at the cradle of Christ, they foretold that he was to be the true king, the perfect high priest, and in the end, the supreme savior of men. I believe these gifts speak to the identity of Christ. And we understand that intuitively when it comes to gift giving, right? When we give gifts, we want it to... Uh, match up with the identity of the person we're giving to. For example, if your kid's into Legos, you don't go buy him a a lot of Play-Doh. Right? You want to get him what he's into. You want to buy things for your children or grandchildren that, that correspond with who they are, what they're into, what they're excited about. For example, if you want to make me cookies... I mean, you would, you would probably choose like a peanut butter cookie with a Reese's cup in the middle of it. You know what I'm talking about? My grandma called them temptations growing up. And if you were trying to get me something that matched with what I love, it would be that cookie, right? But say you don't have time to bake. You could go by the grocery store and just get golden Oreos. That's, I mean, you know, that, that would correspond with who I am, right? That's how we give gifts. We want to we correspond with who a person is. And I believe these gifts corresponded with the identity, the person, the work of Jesus Christ. They're fascinating. So we learn something from their origin, important. We learn something from their gifts, important. But, but third and last, I believe their kneeling communicates something important. Their kneeling. Now, all that, all that I just said is introduction. This is, where I wanna, this is the heart of the sermon, all right? Y'all don't seem too amused by that. But, but really, I want to talk to you about their kneeling. That's what we want to focus on, Christmas, celebrating Christmas on our knees. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. Fascinating verse. It says there, Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now this phrase, fell down, comes from a word that could mean they fell on their faces, prostrate before the Lord. It, it could mean that they bowed down on their knees. It could mean both. They fell on their faces and they kneeled before this child. Uh, but it does mean that they fall down in the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, what does this communicate? It communicates, it reminds us that Jesus is worthy of worship. Jesus is worthy of worship. You see, this story is not ultimately about the star. There's a lot of, I've, I've read some blogs this past week that there's a lot of speculation about the star. Was it um, an alignment of planets? Was it a comet? Was it a meteorite? Um, you know, what was this star? Trying to figure out what the star was. It's, that's not the point of the story. The story is not ultimately about the star, it's about the sun. S. O-N. This story is not ultimately about their treasures that they bring. It's about the treasure. God incarnate. Jesus Christ. 
This story is not ultimately about their wisdom. This story is about their worship. They recognize that Jesus Christ is worthy of worship. And their kneeling indicates this. Their falling down indicates this. So as we think about Jesus Christ being worthy of worship, I want us to learn some things about worship from the wise men. First of all, he is worthy of joyful worship. He is worthy of joyful worship. Look what it says in verse 10. It says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's almost like Matthew writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit can't think of enough words to communicate how joyful they were. Look what it says. They saw the star. They, they knew that God was going to lead them to the, to the child. It settled over the place where he was. And they saw that they were going to find the one they were seeking. As they rejoiced. How much? Exceedingly. With what? Great joy. I mean, these folk, they were excited, right? They could not wait to get there and worship the one they were seeking. He is worthy of, of joyful worship. I like what? John Piper writes about joyful worship. He says, True worship is not just ascribing authority and dignity to Christ. It is doing this joyfully. It is doing it because you have come to see something about Christ that is so desirable that being near Him to ascribe authority and dignity to Him personally is overwhelmingly compelling. You see, when you worship because of the majesty of Christ... Instead of just going through the motions, there'll be a joy stirred up in your heart and your soul because you will see how compelling Christ is. Now, if you're worshiping just to go through the motions, your worship's going to be, you know, bland and dry and um, predictable. But if you're worshiping Christ because He is majestic and awesome, and you draw near to Him, there will be a joy in your worship. See, oftentimes, what we are celebrating at the holidays and our response don't correspond. We sing songs like, Joy to the world! The Lord has come, right? But did you know a lot of folks aren't joyful this time of year? Because of circumstances, because of hardships, because of grief, there are a lot of folks that really struggle with joy this time of year. matter of fact, uh, psychologists have identified something they call SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder, where people really struggle this time of year with, with, with sadness and, and, and hurt. And, and a lot of people struggle with that. And yet we're singing joy to the world, right? It doesn't quite add up. But see, listen, if we understand that Christmas, come in close, Christmas is not ultimately about us. It's about the one who is worthy of worship. And we see how great he is. And we draw in close like the wise men. Instead of just going through the motions of the holiday seasons, our hearts will overflow with joyous worship. And our lives will begin to look consistent. And people will see Christians not just singing about joy. They will see Christians truly experiencing joy. I read a story this past week about a woman in Pennsylvania. True story. She was riding by the house of her ex-boyfriend, and he was in the yard putting up some Christmas lights, and something about that set her off. 
And so she takes off across the yard in her car to try to run him over. And they said while she was doing it, her windows were down and Christmas music was blaring. So can you imagine you're walking down the street? She didn't get him, by the way. He's safe. And she's in jail. But, but, but can you imagine walking up on this scene and this woman is, is driving through the guy's yard with Christmas music blaring, trying to run somebody over? Just doesn't add up, does it? Doesn't add up. Listen to me. We want our worship this Christmas to add up. We want people to see how joyful we are because of Jesus. He's worthy of joyful worship. Secondly, he's worthy of humble worship. He's worthy of humble worship. It says there in verse 11 that they fell down, either on their faces or on their knees. They, they, they lowered themselves in the presence of a child. Can you imagine how remarkable this is? These, these wise men, these very important men, walk in with these great gifts. And they bow down before a child. The bowing down, the the lowering themselves is an act of humility. Falling to the ground communicates humility in the presence of greatness. It's as if you're saying to someone in that action, you are great and by comparison I am lowly. So I believe there needs to be an element in our worship of, of humility. We recognize that Jesus is everything and we're nothing without him. That he is our hope, he is our joy, he is our purpose, he is our meaning, he is our light, he is our life. And we worship him recognizing his greatness and recognizing our lowliness. That's humble worship. And then third, he's worthy of costly worship. Verse 11, it says, They fell down and worshipped him, then opening their treasures... They offered him gifts. And so the gold, the frankincense, myrrh are called treasures and gifts. Things of great value. Their worship of Jesus cost them something. They brought these elaborate, expensive gifts. And I want to suggest to you today that our worship of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, ought to cost us something. So wait, what should it cost me? I didn't bring any gold or frankincense and myrrh today. How should my worship of Jesus cost me something? Well, I believe Charles Spurgeon gives us an indicator in his sermon on this text. Charles Spurgeon said, Enter the house and worship. Jesus was born that you might be born again. He lived that you might live. He died that you might die to sin. He is risen and today he maketh intercession for transgressors that they may be reconciled to God through him. Come then, believe, trust, rejoice, adore. If you have neither gold, frankincense, nor myrrh, bring your faith, your love, your repentance, and falling down before the Son of God, pay Him the reverence of your hearts. So if you're here today, you forgot your gold and frankincense and myrrh, Why not give Jesus what he really desires from you? Why not give him your life? Why not surrender everything that you are to him? That's what he wants. He wants you. He wants you completely. He wants you fully. He wants your life. He wants to fill you and he wants to use you and he wants to change you. 
But for that to happen, you must surrender. Worship should be costly. Amen? should be costly. So this Christmas season, give Him everything. You say, wait, wait, why should I give Jesus everything? Why should my worship be costly? Because of what's happening in this text. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ left the splendor and glory of heaven and came to this earth, taking on humanity in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So he was born to Mary. He was fully God and fully man. And he lived among us, Emmanuel, God with us. He lived a perfect, matchless life. He did not sin. He didn't think a wrong thought, didn't say a wrong word, didn't perform a wrong deed. He was the spotless Lamb of God. And Jesus decided of his own volition to go to the cross and take all of your sin and ugliness and all of my sin and ugliness on his own shoulders. And on the cross, he became a curse for us. He took the curse of sin in our place. And the Father poured out his wrath upon the Son who took our punishment for us. He died in our place, our substitutionary atonement. And after he died on the cross, he was buried, wrapped in spices like myrrh. And he was, he was buried. And early on the third day, he walked out of his tomb. He rose from the grave. He defeated death itself. And he reigns forevermore. One day he will return. And he is mighty to save. So I would submit to you. That he is worthy of our worship. He's worthy not just of just, uh, of just going through the religious motions. Bowing when the liturgy tells us to bow. He's worthy of heartfelt adoration overflowing that leads us to get on our knees before him. And stand in awe of his greatness. He's worthy of costly worship. And so, as we think about this well-known passage, the origin of these wise men communicates something important. And the gifts they give communicate something important. And their kneeling communicates something important. And here's what I want you to walk away with. Celebrate this Christmas by bowing your knee and your heart before our wonderful Savior. Celebrate Christmas by bowing your knee and your heart before our wonderful Savior. Now, here's what I want to ask you to do as your pastor. I want you to walk away with something very practical this morning. And I believe if you'll do this, I believe it can potentially change the way you view the holidays. I want to encourage you to find some time during the season leading up to Christmas. I want to encourage you to find some time to get alone with Jesus. You and your Bible. Close out Facebook. Leave your phone in the other room. All right? Turn TV off and, and, and get into a room by yourself with your Bible. And I want to encourage you to open your Bible to one of the birth narratives. Luke chapter 2 or Matthew chapter 1 and 2. 
Maybe you can go read Isaiah chapter 9 or Isaiah chapter 7, Micah chapter 5. I mean, just find a passage that speaks of the the incarnation, the birth of Christ. And, And I want to encourage you to actually read through that passage on your knees. If you're physically able, I know everyone's not physically able. If you can't bow your knee, you can certainly bow your heart, right? But if you are physically able, there's something humbling about bowing, isn't there? There's a recognition in that posture that you are in the presence of someone who is awesome. And you are celebrating and adoring and worshiping. And so just find some time this this next week or two to just get alone with Jesus and read the birth narrative literally on your knees. Now listen to me. If you do that this week, I promise you next Sunday will mean more to you. You'll come next Sunday with a totally new perspective because you've spent time humbled and joyful before the presence of Jesus offering Him your life. And that's a game changer, amen? That's a game changer. So spend some time either with a bowed heart or bowed knee, both spend some time bowing before the Lord, reading this story again, remembering that He was born for a purpose. He was ultimately born to die for you and for me. I guess what I'm asking you to do this week is to celebrate the gospel, the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection, the ascension, the second coming. Celebrate Jesus and what He's done for you.